Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their very core basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We have a very special guest on the show today, Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi is the daughter of one family business titan. Her father founded the Sheraton Hotel chain and the widow of another. Her late husband was the family business poultry magnate, Frank Perdue. And she's also a businesswoman in her own right. She started the family wine grape business, which is now one of the larger suppliers of wine grapes in California. Mitzi likes nothing better than to share her insider tips for successful family businesses. Her family of origin, the one that started the hotels, began with the family business Henderson Estate Company in 1840, and her Purdue family started in 1920 in the poultry business. These two families have a combined tradition of 276 years of staying together as a family. Mitzi speaks on how to make a family business last across the generations and offers actionable advice on how her families created and maintained their family businesses. She also has a new book out, How to Be Up in Down Times, which she co-authored with Mark Victor Hansen, who you will know from the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mitzi. Oh, what a joy to be with you. So the subject of our episode today, if you somehow haven't figured that out yet, is Frank Perdue. Frank was a Maryland chicken farmer who became well-known as a television spokesman for the company that bore his name, appearing in radio and print ads and some 200 television commercials. Among his memorable lines is, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. Over his career, Purdue transformed a family backyard egg business. His father, Arthur, gave up his job as a railway express agent and with the help of his wife, raised 50 leghorn chickens that they bought for $5 into the nation's fourth largest integrated food processor. When he became president of Purdue Farms Inc. in 1952, the company was averaging revenues of about $6 million. It exceeded 35 million by 1967. And that was before in 1968, he spent his first $50,000 for radio ads to bring the previously anonymous fresh poultry industry to the public. His forthright nature and every man appeal eventually made his name synonymous with chicken. In one ad, he said, if you're not completely satisfied with my chicken, you can always write to me, the president of Purdue, and I'll give you your money back. If you buy some government approved chicken and you're not completely satisfied, who do you write? The president of the United States? What does he know about chicken? <laughs> in an interview with the Washington Post in 1975, Frank said, the prime ingredient of success is fear. I'm talking about the kind of fear that made me thorough. You should always have enough fear to always second guess yourself. Sadly, Frank passed at the age of 84 in 2005 after a brief illness. In addition to the more typical documents you'd expect, Frank's estate also included a number of interesting and frankly underused items devoted to maintaining family and family business harmony, including an ethical will, and honestly, something that I actually hadn't heard of before speaking with Mitzi, the idea of an endowed vacation. Uh, Mitzi, 
But someone who's been through the family business succession process from every possible angle, heir, surviving spouse, and business owner, what's the most important aspect that clients and advisors need to focus on to encourage long-term family business success? Well, I think I've spent probably the last 15 years studying exactly that question, and I have a one-word answer. You ready? Of course you are. (laughs) Culture. Because culture is kind of the, it's either a blueprint or maybe a computer program that tells people who they are and how to behave and how to respond in, in different situations. The stronger the family's culture, the better chance they have at success. And the fact is, every single family has a culture. But is it one that came about by accident or by design? And the ones that are designed have a far better chance of enduring across the generations. And I'll tell you just quickly, and then I'll shut up for a moment, but in both the Henderson family and the Purdue family, we put enormous amounts of effort into developing a strong, vibrant, cohesive culture. So first of all, there's no need for you to shut up. The people are definitely (laughs) here to listen to you and not to me. But second of all, this idea of creating culture, I think, is kind of an unusual one, right? Because you know, the idea is that culture generally in, in the great larger world evolves naturally. But you know, creating a family culture can be a very intentional thing. Yeah, if it's, I mean, to my mind, the ones that come about by default most often fail. The ones that were designed where, where you know the values that you want your kids to have. And I'll share with you some of the ones that both in the Henderson family and the Purdue family that, that we try to inculcate them you know, from a very young age. And I would say the first one is stewardship, that what they have isn't for them to go spend on yachts and racehorses. No, it's to increase the value and hand it on to the next generation. You know, they're borrowed from the next generation. So it's not, it's not about me. It's about that I'm part of something bigger than myself. So that's one of the ones that both families work pretty hard on instilling in the children. Another one is And this is something that if you don't teach the kids, they're not going to get it on their own. I mean, unless you're really lucky. And that is, you can't always be right. If there's a quarrel, you know, in both families, particularly the Henderson family, we actually strongly disapprove of somebody saying, I'm standing on principle. Because the moment you say you're standing on principle, well, there's a couple of things wrong with it. Number one, that's virtue signaling, which is almost always a bad thing to do. But second, it's signaling, I'm better than you and I'm not going to listen to you. So we're, we're very, very much against the virtue signaling thing of saying I'm standing on principle. No, we're, we're encouraged to listen to the other side and try to understand the other side. And if there's a disagreement, we're okay with saying, talking about it strongly or necessary yelling or, you know, expressing as forcefully as you need to, to get it out in the open. So we're, we're kind of in favor of quarrels, but we're not in favor of, of being intransigent. What's you can't always thing? be right. The, the family's more important than being right. Absolutely. I, I find that a really like an interesting concept, right? That, that you're bringing up here, the idea of there's like a very subtle difference, but very important difference between culture and principle, or you know, principle is kind of a conversation stopper that maybe, you know, maybe that turns a quarrel into a fight. Well, um, print, I, I think a culture is, I mean, I defined it as the way we do things. It's who yeah. we are, it, it what makes us us. A principle, you know, in theory, 
oh, they're the most wonderful things in the world and you should die for them. However, in a family context, it, it shades into virtue signaling and it's awfully hard to come to a resolution on anything if you're in the middle of virtue signaling. So as I said, at least in the family context, we really look down on disapprove of somebody injecting into an argument, I'm standing on principle. It's awful hard to resolve an argument if somebody's in the middle of virtue signaling. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, that the cultures that are just kind of come about tend to not work as well as the ones that you intentionally build. So what are some of the ways or some of the methods that families um, can start trying to, you know, because obviously this is a very long-term process that maybe never ends. So what are the sort of ways that families can start getting the ball rolling here and start you know, creating, building this culture? All right. I think the Henderson family did start in 1840 and we've never missed a family reunion since the family reunion started in uh, 1890. So we have a long history of, of learning how to instill the culture. And I'm, what I'm about to describe is something that the Purdue family does also. Both families have what we call endowed vacations or endowed reunions. Uh, in 1890, John Henderson was farsighted enough, well, he and his brothers and sisters were farsighted enough to leave money to pay for an annual family dinner. And the idea is the whole Henderson clan would get together for a dinner. Well, the Henderson investments, which included Sheraton and oil wells and all sorts of good stuff, these created enough revenue so that the endowed, the endowed Henderson family dinner turned into the Henderson family weekend. And I think it's possibly the biggest thing that keeps us together because if, if it's part of your identity that whether you're in California or Tokyo or wherever, that you are going to get together and you're going to see your distant cousins once a year and you're going to just revel in where you came from and who you are. That's something that can keep a family together. And I told Frank Perdue about this. For Frank, you know, he had, when we married, he was, he was in his late 60s. And when we married, we discussed what was important to him at that age. And for him, it was family, community, and church. Well, I took it, uh, the assignment of, of being close to family as seriously as I could, because I wanted to please my new husband. And I told him some of the things that the Henderson family does to stay together. And I told him about the endowed family vacations. He loved the idea. And he's been gone 15 years, but the endowed vacations, I expect them to continue on for generations to come because you know, family members love it and you know why not? So I would recommend to anybody who is advising any family, if they have the means to do it, have, have family vacations and have them endowed. Because you know what happens if you don't do that? When the patriarch dies or the matriarch dies, for the first couple of years, people get together maybe for Thanksgiving, maybe for a wedding, then four or five years later, uh, maybe they only get together for a funeral. And by 10 years, without seeing each other on a, on a regular planned for way, the family just goes poof. It's as if it never was. So if you want your family to last, I think step number one is an endowed family vacation. 
And then I have another one that I think keeps is one of the major reasons that the Hendersons have lasted all these years and that the Purdue's have lasted a hundred years. And that is philanthropy. I can't recommend that strongly enough because if you have a foundation, if you can afford it, or if not, just maybe donations to a local community foundation or whatever, it's a way of people, if they aren't working in the business, and by 100 years, the odds are that, you know, you're really lucky if you've got one or two people still working in the business, and, and yet you might have 100 different family members. Well, everybody can coalesce on the identity of we're a family that does good things. And you know, in both the Hendersons and the Purdue's, we vote on where the money goes. We take a lot of satisfaction knowing the good that it does. And it's a way of, to me, one of the best things that keeps a family together is if you're proud to be a family member. And philanthropy is one of the ways to make you proud of being who you are and, and what you contribute back. Yeah, these things are both amazing, especially just to first talk about the endowed vacations, which I honestly, as I mentioned, in the uh, in the opener, it's not something I'd really heard of, and I've been doing this for you know, a decade, so I'm not unexperienced. And that, that was really the first time I'd, I'd heard that idea. And I think it's really a wonderful idea. And I also actually, think, I've I've never heard of any other family that does this. I mean, yeah, I, it's I, really I'm, cool. I'm, all right, I'm certain that there are, but I haven't come across them yet. And I do a lot of public speaking. I meet with a lot of families. I've heard people who are copying it now, but I don't know anyone. Well, actually, I think maybe the DuPonts do, and I think that they've been doing it for longer than we have. It's not actually, they, they have a family reunion. I don't think it's a vacation. I mean, I think that's the great thing about it, right, is that for you know, the Henderson family, a family vacation is one thing, right? And because of their business success and you know, how great you guys have done, that you know maybe is itself not the most relatable to the average client, but this is the kind of idea that can really easily scale Right, I think it's whatever you can afford to do, and the important part of it is that idea of purposely and intentionally putting aside the money and the fund to make sure that it keeps happening. Because if it's just mixed in with everything else, and it's like, oh yeah, we'll do it again next year, well, you don't get around to it. Life happens, things get busy. Someone who is supposed to plan it, you know, God forbid, something happens to them. There's a million different things that could happen that, that would make the meeting not happen. But if you set up this sort of infrastructure. To, to, to automate this process of like, this is the thing that gets us together every year. You know, maybe it's, we have a zoom meeting and watch a movie or something, you know, it doesn't, it, it can scale by way of, you know, whatever the, in, the income level and whatever the desire level is to see everyone. But the important part is the, is the seeing everyone and spending time with everyone in some way, shape or another. You know, another thing that we do that, that is absolutely scalable to anybody, assuming that they can read, that's the one requirement. But we have family newsletters and we have a What It Means to Be Us book. And it started with the Hendersons, but the producer taking that over or having their version of it also. And that is, we ask every family member who's old enough to write and old enough to read to write a little essay on what it means to be us. And then to write three or four or five words about, you know, just adjectives that describe the family. We put it together in an album. In the case of the Henderson family, oh, it's probably 90 pages long. And each person, just the act of thinking about what it means to be us, reinforces that you're part of something bigger than yourself. It makes you think of the family. And it's just beautiful because in this album, we have a photograph of each person. We have their birthday. We have 
their adjectives describing the family. And then we also have their essay. And the essay can be, it could be 50 words, it could be a thousand words. But what's just so super neat is it means like the 80 year olds in the family can know what the 12 year olds are thinking. And the 12 year olds can know what the 80 year olds are thinking. It gives you a different view of every single family member. And the response that that I get back from, they're, they're like at five year intervals, but the response that I get back from these books is that it's just one of the most wonderful possessions that they own. I mean, I suspect that if there were a fire, that might be one of the first thing that people grab because it's their identity. It is, to repeat the title, what it means to be us. Absolutely, and I think activities like that that allow everyone's voice oh. to be heard. <laughs> you wouldn't believe, but that's Siri somehow listening to me. Every, everyone's got an opinion about this stuff. <laughs> well, she said she's going to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> but like the, that idea is so great because it allows everyone to have their voice. I think you know we mentioned the ideas of culture and principles earlier. That a lot of times when you're coming up with these sort of the family culture, the family principles, over time they can kind of evolve into a restricting kind of like family rules almost. And that, that's really the wrong direction to take things. Um, you know, you want you want it to be inclusive, not exclusive, and sort of have a common thread running throughout the family that you, know, you think are your positive values, but you don't want to you know get too close to you know interpreting it this way. Like this is what you know, the founding fathers would have wanted, or getting into that sort of idea, because now you're limiting the ability for the family to change as times change and as circumstances change. And you know, that that that's the sort of thing that can create. Well, if Grandpa's opinion. Is all we can go by, then the new generation is going to be a little alienated. I think ours is more joyous. And culture, by the way, is what's not codified, what's not written down as rules. I mean, the rules can be a teeny tiny part of the culture, but the overall culture is this is how we do things. Like in the Hendersons, I think that we just have it so well understood how we resolve conflicts. It's generally by consensus. On the other hand, the Purdue's it's typically by vote, but that works equally well because people know what to expect, know, know you know, this is how we do things. And one, one of the rules is if it didn't go your way, you're not supposed to look back. And I can share a story with you of where this particular principle just really came into effect. And it was when, when my father died, he and my uncle were the co-founders of the Sheraton Hotel chain. He had 400 hotels at the time of his death. But for various reasons, it was super appropriate to sell the chain on his death. And they were, they were economic reasons having to do with consolidation and the travel industry and one thing or another. And the, the five siblings, me being one, were very much divided on whether we should sell or not. And it was possibly the hardest decision that I've ever had anything to do with because I was in the side of don't sell. <clears throat> in fact, it was three to two, don't sell. But since our family isn't into voting, we decide by consensus. It was something that we just talked and talked and talked about. But I would say the feelings were quite hot because my side was saying, you know, this is our father's legacy. Nobody will care about the employees as much as we do. This is who we are. But I have two brothers who both have business school backgrounds and they were able to make such compelling arguments about why it really made sense that by consensus, we did decide to sell. And I'm thinking that 
our tradition of when the decision is made and you don't look back, you just unite and move forward. Now, what a blessing that's been for us because you know now, how many years later? Now, more than 50 years later, we're still a strong united family. And I think the reason that that very difficult decision didn't destroy us, I mean, nobody went to lawyers asking to represent our side. Nobody went to the press. We were private about this disagreement. The reward is we're still a strong family. And by the way, I just mentioned a really, 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 really important thing that's taught to both the Hendersons and the Purdue's. You know, we were mentioning rules. And I'm not sure, yeah, this is a rule. Or at least it's it's a value that's so strong that it's uh, it's part of who we are. And that is, it's okay to quarrel within the family. But the covenant that we have is you can say anything you want inside the family, but you don't go to outsiders. You don't go to the press. You don't go to lawyers. Because when you do... I mean, I've observed this over and over again. By the time a quarrel like escapes and gets into the wild, it's awfully hard to put that genie back in the box. It's almost a bridge too far by the time you've got lawyers involved in a family quarrel. So both families have the strongest, I don't know if I'd call it a rule or just an identity thing, but we don't take quarrels public. And in the case of Sheraton, boy, was that ever put to the test because I can't tell you how strongly we all felt, but nobody went to the press, nobody went to lawyers. I would be okay with a lawyer who is representing the entire family, you know, just for advice, but for one family member to go to a lawyer and saying, represent me and fight the rest. Nope, don't do that. Don't, 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 don't. And then again, don't. Yeah, it's, that's one of those things where the, the value of communication and having the culture of communication really pays dividends. It's kind of one of those things that you don't notice it's not there until you need it, you know? And, and so it's like you're in your everyday life interaction with your family, you know, maybe if you're not communicating enough, it's not going to be some crushing thing that messes your family up until something happens where you need it. And it's like, oh, wait, it's not here. And now it's too late. So, but, I, but I bet every one of our listeners, because they're professionals, they've seen families blow up. If those families had only been taught, you know, since the child was two years old, you can't always be right, and you're part of something bigger than yourself, and you solve quarrels within the family. You know, if, if people had known that, think how much misery would have been avoided. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's, that's I think, one of the things that maybe is a little bit easier. I mean, I don't think it's ever easy. But as a little bit like forward thinking like that, as you get into the next generations, I think a lot of times when you're dealing with like the actual wealth creator still being involved, it's hard for them to have that whole picture in their head, right? Of like they're busy building this big business and, you know, devoting their entire life to it. And then also to have the awareness to turn around and look and say, okay, now let me start creating this family culture. Like that's really one of those things where it takes a village where, where the rest of the family has to kind of come in and be like, let's help out with this because the one person can't do everything, even though maybe they think they can. And yet, you know, but my father, he was a captain of industry. He employed 20,000 people. He was, he was a national figure. And yet he still took the time every Sunday after church services, he would have what's called family hour and he would lecture us. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he he would talk about like family stories or or values or I mean he he didn't leave our upbringing to chance I mean he he put a lot of effort into the culture and by the way 
I told Frank about that. And Frank said, yeah, I'd love to do something like that, but it's not my personality to, to lecture at my kids and grandkids. I just, you know, it would just, it, it wouldn't work. So we came up with another way that works just beautifully. And again, I recommend this to everybody. We have family newsletters. They come out in a normal year. It would be like one a month. This, this year during uh, COVID-19, uh, it's like four or five a month. But the newsletters talk about what's going on in the family. But it, they also involve interviews with the elder members of the family talking about the values that they'd like to have continued. And then something that I think I invented, although maybe somebody else <laughs> did it before me. But with the, with the family newsletters, I knew they were an enormous success because uh, you know, the feedback I'd get would be when they arrived, people would drop everything to read them and they'd talk about them. And you know, when family members would get together, they'd talk about what great Aunt Matilda said. Uh, but it occurred to me one day, because I love to study both culture, I read all the books on it I can get my fingers on, and also persuasion. I read all the books I can get my fingers on for persuasion also. And it became so clear to me that if you really want to instill a culture, get them while they're young. So I thought, I write these newsletters for the adults, and I believe they're a success, but why not try with the children? From age, you know, initially I thought from maybe age four up, maybe four to age 12. And so I began maybe four times a year, maybe five times a year, I'd have a newsletter just for children. And for the younger children, the parents would read it to them. For the older children, they could read it themselves. And it would have very simple stories from their history or from what's going on in the company. And I would plan it so every single newsletter had some kind of message in it. Like for example, we're a frugal family. So I'd tell the story about how great grandmommy, Mommy Do, her name, Mommy Do, how at Thanksgiving, she would make her famous biscuits and her famous biscuits, she would make them, you know, she'd whip up the batter and then she'd cover a baking sheet with aluminum foil, drop the biscuits on it, bake the biscuits, remove the biscuits, and then should scrape off the crumbs, wash the aluminum foil with soap and water, dry it and recycle it, use it over and over again. And the lesson there was that we're a frugal family, we're a, an environmental family, we do not waste. And then, because, you know, just hearing that in the newsletter, you know, I hope it has some effect, but to increase the effectiveness of it, every newsletter is accompanied with a treasure chest, which is, it's roughly the size of a shoebox, and it looks like a treasure chest. And inside are gifts for the kids. And in this case, the gifts were costumes. Kids love costumes. There would be the ingredients in a, in a Ziploc bag for Mummy Do's biscuits, for two biscuits. There would be aluminum foil, but there would also be a chef's hat, you know, kid size, uh, a chef's smock. And the kids, every activity that ac accompanies a newsletter is designed to last roughly an hour and they get to do it with their grown-up. And the grown-up discusses with them why we're frugal, what it means to be frugal, who was great-grandmummy, mummy do. You know, they just, it's a designed way of teaching the kids values that are important to us.
it really is kind of a, a very nice and it's kind of a very clever way of going about it, right? Where you're not just sitting them down and saying, hey, Henderson's recycle. And that's just, <laughs> and there's, there's no one's, in, you know, you're sort of like, hey, here's a nice story. So now you're learning something about your grandmother. And here, you know, and also here's the recipe. So now you have this sort of this family heirloom that connects to everyone. So we can all enjoy these biscuits that have been passed down, we've sort of passed on this, this physical family thing. And then in addition, we slip in this lesson about recycling that, that you're not even really telling them, they're just kind of intuiting it from the story. And um, I think this is a really sort of an elegant way to, to, to address a lot of those things as opposed to just like sitting a kid down and like, here's what we do because we're this. Well, I'll tell you some of the psychological principles behind it. There's the, the principle that if, if you're doing something nice and enjoyable, it, you're far more likely to absorb the ideas. So, you know, cooking with your grown up and, and enjoying delicious biscuits, you know, that's just a pleasurable experience. Uh, so that part's good. Then there's kind of reciprocity. They're getting a gift and that puts you in a good mood. If you're getting a gift, you're kind of primed to be, to re be receptive to the idea. So the gift part is good. And then if you want to learn something, you know, it's fine if you hear it, but if you actually do it, it sinks in so much deeper. I gotta so, say that's, yeah, go ahead. So, Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that, that I put some psychology into this. And by the way, I wrote a book on this and anybody who wants it, if they'll, if they'll go to Amazon, there's a book on newsletters for children and it's how to instill culture in a way that they'll love it. And so it's, it's sample newsletters that people can fill in the blanks for their own family circumstance. And it also has, it tells you where to go to get the different gift boxes and the, and the things that would go in them. They're all available on Amazon. And this is another wonderful thing that can sort of be as big or as small a production as you want it to be or as you can afford it to be. Because an email is free. So, you know, that if it's, hey, this is my family email I send out because we can't afford to do the big gift thing. Or, you know, there's a million ways to do it. And it, it, that's what makes it an interesting idea, maybe an effective idea across different wealth bands is that you know, it can be as big or small a production as you like because it's the concepts that are the important part, not necessarily the execution. And you know, the, another one that, that Frank Perdue did that I just cherish, and this one is totally free. And whether you have a billion dollars or 10 cents, you can still do this. And that is an ethical will. And I wonder how many of our listeners know what an ethical will is, but in case, in case somebody doesn't, I'll explain it. An ethical will is sort of like the will where you leave your worldly goods to somebody, but in this case, it's where, where you leave the values that you think will create happiness for them in the future. And the principle of an ethical will goes back to biblical times, but Frank Perdue loved the idea of, he wanted those who came after him to be happy, and he felt that if you really want to be happy, there's certain ways of conducting your life that are going to make you more likely to be happy. The kind of thing where at the end of your days you can think, I've lived a good life. And number one of these is be honest. Another one is treat people with respect, no exceptions. And another one, which I utterly treasure because you know in my life it's just been so true. If you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. 
is that not cool? Is that not just wise? And he had uh, 10 of these. You know, those, that's, that's a really, just a really good exercise to do even while you're still living. Just the, the putting together of the ethical will, there's a lot of names, so we'll, we'll call it an ethical will here, is, is just a really useful exercise in self-reflection and in perspective, um, both yeah. of which are insanely valuable. And well, we spent three whole days on it, and I bet we narrowed it down. The, the way we approached it and the way I recommend to anybody is, Frank didn't type, and I do type, so this is how it worked out. We would discuss ideas that he thought led to people's happiness. I'd type them down, and then maybe we had like 50, and we narrowed it down to 10 on the theory that you know it's, they, they start to lose their meaning if you have too many. And this was something that his grandchildren read at his funeral. Each child read one of those. And then we have it engraved in bronze and every family member has a copy of it. And then when a new child is born, uh, that child gets a copy. Actually, I think it's given to them at age 16. Or if you marry into the Purdue family, one of the gifts that we welcome you in with, our welcome package includes a copy of the ethical will in bronze. See, and that's like a really nice connection to the past. You know, I just to interject like my own experiences as, as you know as an advisor as an attorney is that a lot of times when you're putting together any sort of estate planning document that the process of doing it is often more valuable and will just solve the problem that that the document is actually meant to say. It won't even get that far. That you know it'll be I have this document. We all sat down as a family and we we've sat out and laid out a bunch of possibilities, a bunch of permutations of if, if this happens, so-and-so does this and this and this, but you end up never having to rely on the document when, when something happens because just the setting up of it has gotten everyone on the same page. Yeah. And you've learned all these things about, you know, that, that maybe you didn't know were important to each other, or maybe the person who, who it is important to didn't even know it was important to them themselves until you were at, you know, you were sitting down and having to force to think about it by someone else. So well, I'm so on things, board. Yeah, that you can't read people's minds and you can't just look forward and be like, oh, I should have done this. Like you have to sit down and let people hash it out. Yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, it's, it's to my mind, it's just staggering how much better off you are if you've thought through these things. And it, it gets back to what I said at the beginning, every family has a culture, but when it's intentional, when it's planned, when it's, when you understand it rather than you just sort of in the fog, let it happen. You're just so much better off in every count. Amitzi, I've let the time get away from me a little bit, but the conversation was just so interesting. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This has really been a special talk. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, can I quick talk about the book that I just finished? With I was Martin just about Pat? to ask you to. Uh, thank you. It's on Amazon and probably the easiest way to find it. It's how to be up in down times. And, you know, the biggest honor of my life, I hardly know what to do with myself about this, but uh, my co-author is Mark Victor Hansen. And you know of him, whether you know that you know him or not, because if you've heard of Chicken Soup for the Soul, he's one of the co-authors. He's sold half a billion books. Well, I'm his co-author in this. And then there's also his stepson, Preston Weeks. And I think it's got some of the best advice possible. And oh boy, that sounds so vain. Me <laughs> if you do it. say well, so I'm, yourself, right? Well, actually, I'm thinking of my two co-authors when I say that. <laughs> Mitzi, but, thanks so much for joining us. And to all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. 
Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.